out? Yeah. All right. So uh, why don't we get started? Asia and Nathan, um, on behalf of CUNY Law Review and um, Rachel and me and all of our staffers, uh, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed working on the article. Um, thank you for sharing your experiences um, and showing the shortcomings of the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act uh, for criminalized immigrant survivors, mainly that um, once criminalized immigrant survivors sentences get shortened under the DBSJA, ICE and law enforcement's collaboration leads to those survivors getting deported, um, which is in contrast to the intent of the act to provide relief to domestic violence survivors. So, um, Asiya, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, how did you come to the U.S. and what were your plans while you were in the U.S.? Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Asia, Asia Serrano. Uh, I was born and raised in Panama, and at the age of 15, I moved to New York with my mom. Well, actually, my mom lived a year before um, me, and she sent for my sister and I, who were the oldest. Um, so our plans to leave in Panama were simply, you know, more better life, uh, better opportunities. And since my father worked for the American government while we were here in Panama, we had no problems getting uh, the paperwork necessary to leave Panama. Um, when I got to New York, I was 15 going and 16, and I was placed in high school, and I spoke no English. And it was very difficult to um, assimilate, to make friends without having been able to communicate with them. And But, you know, within a year, I was able to... Um, understand it and it took me a little while to actually speak it but I began to make friends. I went to Jamaica High School in Queens and I was placed in the 11th grade so after my first year in high school I, um, I knew enough English to be able to graduate and I graduated with my class the following year. That was the one. Um, after I graduated because of my immigration status I was unable to go to college um, I mean, I could have went to college, but I had to pay, and my family didn't have the money to pay, and I didn't qualify for financial aid. Um, so right after that, um, I started working at a supermarket where they allowed me to work uh, as a cashier, and actually worked while I was in high school. And I um, kept that job for a few few years. After. to welcome us and um, so that we can all have an opportunity to to do better, to search for, for a better life. But because of the hurdles that I, you know, that I faced, and my family wasn't, um, my family wasn't smart enough when it came to immigration. You know, they thought that maybe it's best to keep it this way as opposed to looking for assistance. Um, I stayed in that condition for many years. I went to the States with a visa, a 10-year visa, but um, after a year of being, I think they allowed me to stay there. At six months a year, I'm not sure how long was the time frame. But I guess we were in violation of that. But as, as a minor, you know, your, your parents don't tell you everything you need to know. And um, 
I have to say that going to the United States wasn't my choice. You know, my mom went, so we had no choice but to go. And so we were uprooted from what we knew and then placed there, and we had to figure it out. My sister and I, my cousin as well. Um, yeah. Um, thank you so much for uh, sharing all of that. Um, Asia, we see that uh, many attorneys worked on your case before Nathan. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you two got connected? Uh, well, I was in uh, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility where I served uh, almost 15 years of my sentence. I was part of a, of a group of women, actually a survival punish, right? I knew someone who was uh, communicating with someone survival punish, and they said, would you like to meet someone? And I was like, sure, absolutely. And uh, a woman named Sama, Sama uh, began visiting me, and we became friends. Sama would visit me maybe like once or twice every every two months. And I remember Sama saying, I am an immigration attorney, but she explained in what sort of uh, like role she played in, in this. And, you know, I totally never, I never asked any questions. We just met, we visited, we spoke on the phone, we wrote letters. And she just provided that sort of support from the organization. Um, when I, I remember when I, when I first, uh, um, when I was about to be resentenced, when I got resentenced, I wrote Sam and I was like, Sam, um, you know, I, I have an immigration situation that I have to deal with, but I'm not so sure what the status is. And she says, well, let me connect you with someone that I know. And I met Sophia first. I began communicating with Sophia immediately while I was still in Tacana Correctional Facility. And through Sophia, I met, I met Nathan. Um, by the time I met Nathan, I was already in Rensselaer County. And um, I spoke to Nathan once, and I never he said, well, hi, Asia. Like, I, I just want your permission to be like your attorney. I was like, permission? I'm super happy uh, that you are willing to take my case. And so from that, from that moment, from the moment he said, I'll be in charge, he has been in charge. And it has been such a great relationship to have Nathan um, uh, look for any little opportunity that he can to, to help me out, to uplift my story, to um, let's work in this. And obviously he does it, but he always asks me for permission. Is it okay? And my response is always, it's always going to be okay. I trust you. But he's so good when he says, no, I still need to ask you. And I always want your permission when it comes to things that, you know, will have your story out there. That sounds like uh, really just client-centric and, and diligent lawyering. Yeah. yeah, well, and I would just add to that. I mean, I think that one thing that is really important about Asia's cases, I mean, Asia has testified before the New York State Legislature. Asia has written op-eds, Asia has participated in panels like, you know, your advocacy. I mean, I definitely bring ideas to you, and I hear what you're saying about, like, you know, certainly when it comes to court paperwork, there's a lot of checking in, but I'm taking the lead. But you also take the lead in uh, most of the political advocacy work and just do it sometimes on your own. And and so that's, Asia's been working on advocacy both at the state and federal level, you know, participating in act, um, actions and panels around the New Way Forward Act, um, which is federal legislation that would create a path to return to people in Asia's situation and also lessen the immigration consequences for a lot of 
past criminalization across the board. And I think that one of the things that has really been um, important for me personally about working with Asia is that, you know, because Asia, you're such a, such a powerful advocate and so energized to advocate politically around your case, I think that, you know, I've seen a big part of my role as just helping find opportunities and like helping with implementing things like this article or other work that, that we've done together because one, I think your voice is so essential and, and powerful, but also because I think that there's, you know, a tendency for lawyers to kind of dominate in these conversations. And I think that that's, that's a thing that can lead to a big disconnect between the experiences of people who are in situations like yours, Asia, and, and, you know, what the lawyers who represent those folks say is best for them. And a great example of that is with things like the institutional hearing program that we talk about in the article where, you know, legal service providers might say, this is great and we want this to continue. And even without assuming any ill intentions from them that it's sort of like in a grotesque way self-interested and they know that it's to the detriment of their planet, even leaving that off the table, which I, I don't think is what's happening, it's still, it just reflects their biases and, and shortcomings. And, and, you know, Asia has the experience of being inside seeing what this looks like in practice, and then I can ask something of her about her view on this, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I know what that looks like. It's really terrible from a lot of people. And I think that that kind of, like, openness to critique and mindfulness of the limitation of the role of lawyering, especially in a case like this where the law is just, like, so stacked against, you know, anything good happening here, I think it's it's been really important for me, and I think maybe something that, you know, Sophia and Sama and I are open to, and we all still work together, even though, like, my name my name has been on more of the filings, um, that maybe past lawyers haven't been who've worked with Asia, and also often lawyers aren't in general. Um, I think that's a great segue to our next question. Um, so the article shows the difficulty of non-citizens who have deportation orders um, in securing immigration representation other than with firms that practice immigration law in a seemingly mechanical, narrow, and sometimes even exploitative way. So Nathan, um, can you discuss as an immigration lawyer uh, some of the systemic issues that you that you know cause immigration lawyers as an industry to not incorporate more of that like client-centered advocacy into their lawyering that you just talked about? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. And, and Asia, I think it'd be really useful to um, for you to share your experiences with, you know, past lawyers, immigration lawyers, or just like interacting with lawyers in general. Um, but I, I think that my, I think that in terms of systemic issues, I think there are a few things. One, I think that, you know, people have, people who practice law, I think, are kind of often indoctrinated <laughs> into thinking about the system in a certain way and thinking that the system is about justice and thinking that they, you know, if they present 
things in a certain way, then the judge or ICE won't do the maximum amount of violence to their client. And I tend to, I think it's important to be diligent and do all those lawyering things too, of course. But I also think that that getting into that mindset where you are telling yourself that if I just lawyer well, then something just will happen, I think is really dangerous. And I, so I think that that's, that's kind of a, I think that's a way that people are encouraged to think and also a way that people kind of feel they have to think about their jobs for self-preservation and to stay motivated to wear. Um, another systemic issue is that I think people don't trust their clients. Like don't trust people to speak publicly about their cases. I think lawyers are really nervous that if they haven't prepared someone the way they would prepare someone to be on the witness stand and they speak publicly about their case, either they're going to say the wrong thing or they are going to antagonize the judge or antagonize ICE and that that's going to, they're going to be mad and that's going to lead to a worse outcome. And I understand, of course, that you could say something publicly that ICE could bring up in court. Obviously, that's a possibility. But I think that it's also the case that, you know, if you aren't willing to fight publicly too, then you seed that whole, it's like a multi-front war against state violence, right? And one front is ICE and the cops doing public propaganda all the time. They do public propaganda all the time. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of missed opportunities because lawyers play a role where they're discouraging their clients from speaking publicly or even more than that, what we see in Survived and Punished a lot is that if we're connected with someone in an advocacy way, not representing them, I mean, Survived and Punished doesn't represent anyone, but no, none of us are involved in representing someone, but they have a, you know, private criminal defense attorney or a, you know, 18D publicly appointed defense attorney, that lawyer will try to stop the volunteers and survive and punish from even speaking publicly. It's like not even the person who's getting prosecuted or, you know, going up for their DBSJA resentencing. It's the, it's like other volunteers. They don't want anyone to talk about it publicly. And, and I think it all just kind of contributes to this idea that the law is not about politics and that the law is some like internally coherent, highly specialized system of rules and things operate according to the rules. When I think we know or should know that this is all political and, and so we have to fight politically or else we're going to lose. But I'm curious, Asia, what you think about like how, how you felt with you know, your relationship with the various lawyers had over the years from your original case through to immigration proceedings inside through to the DVSJ, like before we started working together, you know, how it was for you working with those lawyers. So it's, it's, it was precisely what you explained. It, it is a, a thing where it's best if you don't say anything, um, Unless you're, I have prepared your inner to speak. So with my criminal uh, uh, attorney, Alan, 
we had a great relationship, but he did fear that anything that I would say could potentially harm me. And so uh, the whole time that I, I waited uh, trial and sentencing, I I wasn't able to speak. And um, this is actually the first time after all the years and all the attorneys that I've, um, I've encountered that I have been allowed to use my voice. And one thing that Nathan always says is no one tells your story better than you. I want you to say it. And, you know, like we will sit and he will, we will write each other. He will send me messages. Are you comfortable? And yes, I feel like you can do this. You got this. You know, your voice is very important. You're a great advocate for yourself. And so it's the, the constant reassuring that you were told not to speak and you were told not to say certain things, but if now is the time that like it's important for you to speak. It's important for people to hear you directly. You know, I can't tell you, but there's emotion behind it. You lived it, you experienced it. And so my first immigration attorney, if we can even call him my immigration attorney, um, I met him for two minutes before seeing the judge. And he spoke very fast. He said a few things. We're going to go in and we're going to come out and that's it. And so... I got to say nothing but my name, and and I, I felt like at the moment I felt like it was the right thing to do because when you are in front of a, a judge, you don't just say what you say. You are you are spoke. You speak when you are allowed to speak, and you speak when your attorney feels like you're prepared to speak. And so all of that ended up affecting me more than it helped me. And so the second hearing was the same thing. You know, we didn't see each other again. I didn't get any. I just went in. Oh, they're gonna ask you two questions. And he told me what the two questions were going to be. Um, is this true? Yes. And that, that was about it. But there was never a moment when I felt free enough to say um, how I felt or that I or never, never felt that it was, I never felt adequate enough. So obviously I, I don't know um, the lingo, but I also didn't feel adequate enough to even say that's not true or mess something. Um, whereas now I feel very empowered to say this is not what is happening, or I, I don't agree. I honestly, rarely ever do Nathan and I ever disagree on something. You know, he's able to see my point, and I'm able to see where he's coming from, and we work so well together. And the same thing applies for Sama and, and Sophia. Sophia, who's like so outspoken, I love it. Um, Nathan is too, and Sophia is just like a ball of fire, and I just love the, the authenticity and how we're able to just chat with each other, not just like an attorney-client relationship, but as someone who's really invested in in the best outcome for my life. And so now I feel like this is the first time in all of the years that I've encountered attorneys that I can actually speak um, publicly and openly and say, you know, what really happened without feeling like there's going to be repercussions for it. Um, that is, that's all really great to hear. Uh, and I think somewhat connected to that, um, we do want to ask Nathan a question about your own professional identity. Um, so as Asia has talked about it already, um, and as the article mentions a lot, you have approached Asia's case emphasizing your attorney's representation was flawed uh, from the start, and Asia just spoke to that uh, whole series of, of representation, um, and that ended up uh, escalating to her deportation upon DVSJ, a resentencing. Uh, 
clearly you've approached her case really differently, and you are currently working on um, getting her back to the U.S. Uh, through various ways. Um, so we're wondering if you can share a little bit more about how you became the lawyer that you are and, I think, speak to the ways uh, generally that you've incorporated um, your strategies in Asia's case in your in your professional identity. Yeah, um, that's a good and hard question. Um, I think that, I mean, I want to just be clear about one thing about the, um, what you said in the beginning of your question about approaching Asia's case, emphasizing earlier attorney's representation with flawed. I do feel that, and I think that that's true for all the reasons we were just talking about, about voice about, you know, disempowering people by using a legal credential to make them feel like they can't speak about their own life, all that, absolutely. But even a more basic level than that, in terms of just doing the basic task of lawyering, Asia's past immigration attorneys have been completely inadequate. I mean, they, both the attorney she had when she was incarcerated and went before an immigration judge, uh, and the attorney who she had right at the end of her citizen, who was supposed to try to help reopen her immigration case, both, both attorneys more or less treated the outcome of her case as a foregone conclusion and, and gave far less than the acceptable minimum level of effort. And the one who was representing her inside gave her active misinformation about where she was at in the process. And so, you know, yes, I stand by all the critiques we were just talking about, but in addition to that, <laughs> her attorneys were inadequate in the most very elemental basic ways um, at just being lawyers. Um, in terms of my sort of approach and professional identity, I think that, you know, I, I think that it's just, it's been really important to me in every aspect of my practice to try to bring whoever I'm working with in on every decision to the greatest extent possible. And that means a lot more conversation about even really basic stuff like, Here's a procedural question. Let's talk about the strategy behind the thing I want to do. And you can weigh in and tell me that's right or wrong. That, that to me, is really essential to try to create a collaborator relationship with everyone who I'm working on. And I think that's true for strategic reasons related to how you approach lawyering and believing that people are experts on their own lives and believing that people should be, you know, should feel empowered to fight their own cases. But it's also true for sort of philosophical and moral reasons related to the same thing. It's not my life that the judge is coming after. And if I'm creating a relationship where, like you was just talking about, you walk into the court with the feeling that you're only 
allowed to correct the record. If someone says something that's not true, you can only say exactly what your lawyer told you. You're allowed to say. There are situations where I might think it's very important for my client not to share information. And if that's true, I will have a conversation with them where I explain why I think that at this particular moment, it's going to be not helpful to share information. Here's what I think makes this moment one of the but the, that sort of like general feeling of empowerment and whatever, to me, that is like the absolute, that's my nightmare scenario for a way my relationship with a client would go. I totally failed in my job as an attorney, even if there's an open um, in the case, if that's how the person was feeling. And I think in terms of how I got that way, I, I mean, I think there are millions million ways to answer that question, but at a very concrete and recent history level, I think that one way is that I did a lot of work in a pro-state immigration clinic before I became an immigration lawyer at the New Sanctuary Coalition, where the the orientation was no one had a lawyer, so everything was about people feeling empowered to tell their own stories and doing the maximum amount possible to help people feel ready to go into the most hostile, disempowering environment and like stand up to that and 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 assert their own narrative. And I think that that just, that's what I did for years before I, as a volunteer, before I was an immigration attorney. And I think that that really grounded me in an orientation to my practice. Um, so I guess going back to, um, you know, advocacy, uh, a seat. Asia, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about how you've been since returning to Panama? And, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit more also about um, any kind of TVSJA-related advocacy work? Sure. Um, I, I think I always tell, I tell Nathan um, that I feel like even though I'm in Panama, I'm so connected to the people in the United States. I have my friends. For 15 or 17 years, I'm still incarcerated, and so those are the people that I that I share things with. Um, in Panama, um, luckily and fortunately, I am okay. Um, even though when I got here, you know, I, my father was 86 years old now, is the person that was in charge of me to say uh, that's my, for lack of a better word. Um, because I, I came here with $300 in my pocket and not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Um, but fortunately, um, speaking English has opened up doors for me. So I, I got a job two weeks after I got here and I am in the same, with the same, I work with the same company. I am a supervisor now. And, um, that has given me the stability that I need. It's not my dream job. I hope to God I don't have to stay there, but it's, it's, it's what allowed me to, um, to, to have, you know, a, a steady income to to be on my own. Now I have my own apartment after um, after a year I was able to get my own apartment. And, and in Panama, we don't have the resources that they have in the U.S. So there's no um, food stamps. We don't have cash assistance. There's no Medicaid. All of these things you obtain through unemployment. And um, so when I, when I think about sometimes I feel like I'm stuck and I'm like things are not moving fast enough. But then I think about it and being released just a little over a year ago, it 
being in the position that I am now and have a Maui department and I haven't worry if I'm going to be able to pay rent tomorrow or be kicked out. Um, having the ability to save money, like I look at all of those things and I'm just like grateful because I am in a good space. No, I don't have my children, which they are like my life. But I still, I have the communication that I have with them today. And, you know, having my children say that they're so proud of me because they know where I was and now the things that I'm doing and, and just sharing with them, you know, every little accomplishment, every little thing that I do here is that's what motivates me to do better. But uh, I, I, what I feel drives me in addition to my children is the connections that I made in the United States. Like I work with the Aspen Association and I, uh, actually, we have a, a panel on Tuesday, and I also work with Marymount Manhattan College, which I graduated from Marymount Manhattan College, and I'm also part of a panel on the 20th, and those connections that allow me to remain connected with the people that I met, with the friends that I that I made over the years, is what allows me to feel like, you know what, you can do this. I have made friends here, my coworkers, but my coworkers don't know my life, and in order to build a, a, a real solid friendship, you share things about yourself, and my incarceration and, and my deportation are things that I feel only certain people are, are will be privy to, and I don't. There's the things that I don't want to share. I don't think that they will understand the things that I have endured, the things that I've experienced, and so I limit myself. And so my relationships here are are surface relationships. The deep relationships that I build over the years, I maintain with my friends in prison. I write through JPEG. We write each other two, three times a week. Um, when I'm able to, I send money. When I'm able to, I, I send things that I know that are necessary because I know what it feels like to be in that position and need and not want to ask someone. And so those those are my connections. Like, I feel like they're my lifeline. Just meeting with people who have been incarcerated who are now, um, like, doing park works on children and people that, I, that we meet sometimes every other week. Uh, I'm a part of the Survivors Justice project is that what it's called i'm not sure i think that's what it's called and so we also meet every other week and those things are what keeps me grounded what keeps me think, saying to myself you can handle this you can do this and you know you can just call someone and, and talk to them if necessary but nathan always says that if, if you need anything just let me know you know some randomly so this is nothing about what we're working on and he will say hey i'm here how can i support you and so those things are what what i feel like are keeping me going to Panama because although I was born here and I was raised here 22 years in the United States, that's what I consider my home. And so coming back here, I, I am making it, but there's, there is a level of, uh, of fear and there's a level of um, apprehension on very area people. And I'm also like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a little bit of a cool I thought that my last person, I was like, I'm going there, I'm going here. But the reality is I'd rather not. I'd rather just stay in my safe space, which right now, right now is my apartment, and continue to build the relationships that I established throughout the years. Yeah, I just, just to add a little bit about that from my perspective, I mean, one thing that I've noticed as I am involved in other work through Survive and Punish or connecting with other people who are incarcerated in New York is I have been amazed at how many people know Asia, ask about Asia, and, like, form a connection with Asia while inside or through, you know, whether through friendship or through, you know, Asia's work as, like, a, as a peer, you know, a facilitator or a peer counselor or someone who's working in the parenting center, like, I think that, you know, Asia has done a ton of work while she's inside, and, and a lot of that work is work that is, it was like trying to be there for people in ways that Asia needed people to be there for her and needed the space to be there for her, but it wasn't, 
side, or whether it's like working to pass legislation like New York for all or dignity not to mention that has those bills in law when Asia was getting released, ICE wouldn't have been able to abduct her from prison on her release day and take her to ICE jail. There, there, there are things that, you know, people respond to the trauma of state violence in different ways and, and no, you know, critique of people who, who can't or don't take it this way, but I'm always like incredibly impressed by how much Asia recognizes that like the stuff that she went through is not just a personal trauma, it's also a reflection of policy and a reflection of the way the state is doing lots of people and continues to really show up for people, not only her friends who she's in touch with, but also, you know, advocating for anyone who's in a similar situation to receive better treatment than what she received. Um, yes, Asia, your, your work, um, both kind of um, on a personal level, uh, providing that kind of um, support that you didn't receive um, in the same situation, and then also um, on a broader kind of um, policy advocacy level is really important and just so impressive. Um, yeah. Are there um, any kind of, you talked about um, a new way forward a bit. Uh, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about that and just if there are any other kind of promising um, legislative amendments to the TBSJA or just other um, promising advocacy efforts. Yeah, I can start. Um, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff happening at the city, state, and federal level. I mean, at the first sort of most basic level, defunding the cops is <laughs> helping address these issues because, you know, there's a line filters of the criminalization dragnet that, like, get people ensnared in the system in the first place. There's also, you know, efforts to hold city capital hearings and hold the city accountable for the ways that they're violating the policies that protect people who are in jail from in Riker, from ICE, there are the legislative efforts that are mentioned in the article, digging the United attention, which would require in the all-nice jailing in New York State and New York for All, which would prohibit the kind of collaboration that would allow ICE to kidnap people at the prison gates, like happened to Asians and has happened to other surviving punishment members and happens to so many people. Um, New York for All in its current version would also end the practice of having deportation courts in prison. And so that would mean that someone at the end of their prison sentence wouldn't be immediately deportable by ICE. ICE would have to, they they would, the person would be released, and then they would be able to fight their case without by device, was able to, you know, find them and start a case. So it's, um, that, that stuff at the state level would make a world of difference in a situation like Asia's. And then the other thing that I would say is, yeah, federally, the New Way Forward Act, which, you know, Asia has spoken in support of on multiple occasions and has a sort of biographic video essay about her life that supports the New Way Forward Act, is kind of like a big step towards undoing some of the most recent changes to immigration laws that make it easier to deport people for past criminal system, you know, criminal punishment. Um, and I think that, you know, it's an important step. It would, it would make it so that the consequences for criminal convictions are less, and it would make it so that people who have been deported after criminalization would in some cases have a path back. And that's obviously all super relevant to Asia's situation and, and would make a big difference. And then the last thing I'd say is just there are local campaigns all over the country to end ICE jailing in people's own neighborhoods, you know, ending contracts, shutting down jail, jail. It's that type of work is is vital, and we increasingly know something we should have known all along. But there's you know a new report from Detention Watch Network that really reaffirmed uh, and proved that having an ICE jail in your local community means ICE will arrest more people in your local community. It's not like an abstract thing. It's not just a question of like where does ICE, you know, sort of like cage people while they try to support them. It's actually a way to keep your community safe. To shut down the local ICE jail. And so all those efforts are going on. And that's like local, state, federal, county, everything. There are efforts everywhere. I don't know.
Asia, if you want to add any anything to Nathan's answer to that question. No, I think Nathan just like covers everything. Um, yeah, it, I honestly like I I know the things that I've done like, uh, to advocate for myself, and I know that those opportunities have come because Nathan is always looking for opportunities where I can either write a piece or speak to someone. I suppose I'm comfortable doing so, and but I I really can't keep track of that. <laughs> and it's something that says, hey, do you remember this? And I'm like, is it the one that I wrote first? Like, this is how I refer to these. Uh, but uh, the only other thing that I've done is meeting with the, the people from SJP. We meet every other week, um, and we have meetings on how to approach like a how can we amend the DDSJA to include our people? Because they do recognize that it has been very limited itself, and to include other crimes, to include um, either shorter sentences, these people with shorter sentences do not qualify. And so, um, looking at the integration piece of it, they do understand that it's a limitation, um, and it's just like just a conversation. How, what can we do? What can be done to avoid this from happening? So, I think expanding on the, the, the last question, the more like legislative uh, amendments or, or like policy advocacy strategies, we were also wondering, I know Nathan and Asia, you both sort of just referenced a few organizing strategies to interrupt the, the collaboration between um, docs, for example, with ICE, but uh, Nathan, as you mentioned, um, lots of agencies cooperate with ICE to, to increase the number of arrests and, and detentions. Um, so I think a, a broad question we'd like to ask um, is whether you want to talk about any any uh, more organizing-based strategies to, to interrupt these deportations. I know Nathan, that you have been involved in uh, Abolish ICE New York, New Jersey, which has a campaign to close Ocean County Jail. Um, and I've also previously heard you talk about big, more mass mobilization events around um, people's hearings that um, people have been successful in delaying uh, really secretive deportations from happening. So uh, stuff like that, if both of you want to take a minute to talk about those strategies. Um, yeah, I, I think sorry, I, I mean, I think that, you know, there are there are times when I think it's important to kind of throw down, have a street action, do something splashy, do something that, you know, is disruptive. And I don't I don't really want to like go a lot down the road of talking about that in this conversation, but I think that, you know, there there have been really important moments um when people have kind of um made it so that the you know, county and state level officials who are responsible for keeping ICE jails open and keeping ICE jails as like a source of revenue for the county or for the state can't use their favorite tactic, which is make the violence that they're doing invisible. They like to pretend that the violence that they are behind isn't really happening or it's less dramatic than it is, that it's not family separation. And so when people can, you know, rally loved ones, get into the street, make a big showing, it, it helps to dramatize and illustrate how this is really attacking a community. And so having a community scale response is really important. And of course, that extends to things like court packing as well, which, you know, is, is sending that same message but to a judge in a particular case. And I think that those types of tactics are really important, you know, in a situation like Asia's in now, the, there aren't moments like a court hearing in front of a judge that makes sense to try to pack the court right now at this stage of the case, you know, but I think that the target that we want to, um, focus pressure on now is total to be getting a pardon for her, which would help pave the path for her return. Uh, Asia, if you have anything you want to add to that, we definitely welcome it. Um, that could also be a good segue to how, how is your case going right now, and if there are any updates that you want to share with us or any strategies, if you want to talk more about the, the campaign uh, for clemency from Opal. Um, honestly, um, I, the campaign, the campaign part, I think that's the most amazing part, right? People who are willing and, and 
to give up their time to advocate for me, to uplift my story, to say, you know what, I think we can do this, we can talk to someone. I think that's the most beautiful part about it. The other part is the weight and the not known, right? So we don't know. Um, the part of the application was submitted when I was still in Winston County Jail. And I was secretly deported, and, you know, Nathan, Sama, Sophia, they, they, they pushed, they asked questions, they've called, they have people call. And the one thing that I, I understand about this process, and just the same for the criminal justice process, everything is, you wait. You do your part, and then you have to wait until someone makes a decision or decides to make a decision. I know that there have been occasions when someone from the government's office has contacted Sophia or Nathan asking questions um, about me, about how we want to go to Panama. But even in those moments, it's always a, we ask questions, and then we continue to wait. Um, I, I said to Nathan, I said to Sophia as well, and I said to him, you know, I don't know how long this is going to take, it's gonna take but I, a part of me is very hopeful. A part of me doesn't want to live just in hope, because I'm going to go back. I know that I have to live, but I have to make a life for myself while I'm here. So this is a big part of, my, of me that refuses to say, like, that's never going to happen. Um, and Nathan doesn't believe anywhere, and neither does Sophia. And I feel like it's very important to, to just, um, like, if I say to myself, I can't do this anymore, I can't continue to hope. But I, I have a great support system. And I'm very fortunate to have people who are just willing to go the extra mile and say, Sophia, for example, she could not take my case. And, and she fought and fought and fought. And finally, she was told, you, you can help me here. And to, to just find a way to meet other people who are doing the same kind of work, people willing to say, you know, I'm willing to help you and help the story. So the campaign for is just amazing to me. And, you know, my family has no idea. They don't understand what's happening. My family is under the impression that, you know, you're going to be there and we're just going to come see you when we can. And unfortunately, I haven't seen my children yet, but they are under the impression that this is going to happen. I like them. And sometimes I rather keep it that way because I don't want them to be hopeful. I don't mind doing the hoping. I don't want them to be hopeful and be disappointed. But for myself, I just think it, it, I know it's not going to move as fast. And I spent 70 years in prison. And I never thought that I would be leaving under a law that will qualify under. But I, I just like to look at everything. Um, not just be negative about it or 100% positive, which is I find myself like in a neutral space where I feel like everything is possible, all possibilities, you know. Uh, uh, I have, there's paths to take. Uh, so Nathan tells me, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. There's always hope for me. He, he's very helpful and very smart that way. We're just opening, we're just a small opening. We're, we're going in there. And that, that, works, that has worked for me and it's very helpful. We're never getting to that to give up. We're going to keep fighting until you're back. I mean, yeah, and just like very concretely and in a boring way. I mean, there's a there's a pending challenge in immigration court right now. Um, the the immigration judge, like the level where her case was, she was originally ordered deported, there was a motion to reopen filed, and that was denied and is currently being appealed. And so if that if that appeal is successful, then it would mean the underlying deportation proceedings would be reopened, and Asia would have a chance to assert different types of claims in those underlying deportation proceedings. And obviously, everything changes if we can get her a pardon. That would be the basis for a new motion to reopen. It would also be relevant to her pending motion to reopen. That would, that would be a game changer across the board. And honestly, the immigration you know, enforcement authority, ICE, CBP, they could parole Asia in, even having been deported without any of these other things happening. So there are multiple paths to pursue right now. You know, We're waiting on a decision on that motion to reopen appeal, and we're in a phase where we're about to start gearing up on the party campaign again. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where the focus is right now, but there are, there are lots of strategies to try. And, and we recently have seen, for the first time, actually, um, people with very serious convictions get a pardon of, those, of that conviction and then be able to return to the United States after having been deported. There have been people who have been pardoned and it's prevented a deportation, but the pardon to return, like process, that's, that's kind of a newer frontier. And there are not that many people who have done that, and, but... One person just successfully did very recently, and I think that, you know, I don't know if he's just going to be number two or number three or number four, but we're, that's, that's what we're planning on happening here, too. Um, so speaking of those 
cases where um, people have had serious convictions and then have been pardoned and been able to return to the U.S. Can you talk a little bit more about those cases? Um, you know, were they, where were they? Um, we had read about some cases in California, for instance, um, where Governor Newsom had pardoned um, non-citizens with criminal records so that they could either uh, remain and not be deported um, or be able to return to the U.S. Yeah, um, so the, the case that I was thinking about is, is very recent. It's a case out of California. The person was born by Governor Newsom. Um, it was somebody who um, was, you know, born in a, in a refugee camp in Thailand, um, you know, a refugee of U.S. Imperial War, and then came to the U.S. as a very young person, and then was imprisoned and deported after being imprisoned. And then it was, it took, you know, some years of advocacy after she was deported to get the pardon. But then she finally got the pardon, and then the immigration court finally entered a decision that allowed her to come back home. Legally, there are a lot of things about her situation that were different, um, but her her overall, you know, trajectory of her story is similar. You know, she she was outside the U.S. for a long time, and we we want to try and move faster. Um, it's it's a it's a political organizing challenge to generate pressure around pardon, and Hoko has really shamefully continued or even exacerbated Governor Cuomo's approach to pardons, which is to be as cowardly, as infrequent, as non-transparent, as limiting as possible. And so there's there's a lot of political organizing that has to go into pressuring the administration to live up to its promises. And also, you know, Oakville, someone who talked about getting into public service because of her mother's experiences with, you know, domestic violence support work and stuff like that. And she hasn't known any commitment to criminalized survivors of gender-based violence in an area where she has the most control, you know, lateral control, which is that she can pardon any and everyone who's gone through those experiences, any and every survivor, and, and especially people who are facing deportation, you know, or been deported and are trying to return, should be getting her attention, and she's doing nothing. So that's that's a, you know, that's a political problem. They have to meet at that level, and, and we're going to. Um, also, as a follow-up, I was wondering if there was anything um, noteworthy in the um, – advocacy campaign of that case in California that you noticed? Yeah, I think one thing that's noteworthy about this advocacy campaign is that there were groups that, sort of like nonprofit groups that have different types of missions that were energized around it. So one thing that I would say, you know, when I hear you talk about being connected to the Survivor Justice Project folks, you know, they, they acknowledge to us in the course of, you know, reaching out to them for this article that they recognize that the DBSJ doesn't do anything for someone who is in a position where the conviction alone is going to make them almost certain to be deported after their prison sentence, at least given all the other policies and practices in New York right now. And what I'd say is that to the extent that SJP and groups like that are showing up for survivors, but recognizing that what they've done doesn't help immigrant survivors, then I, I would really put it to them that they have an obligation to get really engaged in the pardon fight for those folks who are not protected by just getting a sentence reduction. And so I think that the, that sort of coalition of organizations from kind of different focus areas, I think was really key to that case in California. And, and I think we, we would hope that um, some of the folks who maybe focus on domestic violence usually, but don't focus on immigration issues usually, would kind of broaden their understanding of their obligation and their work to, to show up for Asian people who are in Asian situations after they get their DBSJ or something. So our last question 
in Sport Asia. Um, I know that you've talked already a little bit about uh, the, the hope that you're holding out for returning to the U.S., um, but I wonder if you could just talk generally about what clemency would mean to you, um, and I'll just leave it that broad. Being a mom to my children, and I want to say, for the first time, I've always been a part of my children, even from a distance. Uh, I've always been involved in their lives. I've done everything that I possibly can, but nothing replaces the, the physicality of, of my presence, of being there, of them knowing that they can open the door and see me. Uh, it will mean that my family, especially my mom, will be at peace. My mom sees me as someone cool because I didn't stay in Panama long. She feels like I am not fit to be here. She worries about me a lot. Uh, my younger sister's here. My younger sister's able to do whatever she wants. My mom feels like she can handle it. But when it comes to me, she say, um, before you go there, do this. And before somebody sees you, take a, take a picture of the cab number you're going into. Text it to me. Or I have this very small chain. My mom will say, please take it inside the shirt. I don't want anybody to see it. So it's little things like that. Like, it will give my mom a peace of mind. And my family have tried really hard to like, be present for me. But they also understand that my children are for life. And, I, and, I, and it's not that I want to be ungrateful that they are here for me. I'm very grateful. But nothing will ever be pleased that boy. The, the need that I have to be in my children's life and that they have for me. And so having just, I just envision like my life with my children, which it will be, it will be complete. I know that it will be full of drama because they're 17 and 18 and they think that they have their life figured out and I'm here to remind them that they don't have their life figured out. And so it's fun to call mommy and ask mommy about everything, but it may not be as much fun when mommy's ready to take you And so I just, I just want that, you know, I want to have that where I know I'm going to fight for my daughter and I'm ready for it. And, and, and just, just be what I, I dream of being for that. I still help my daughter with college work. I still, as I have done throughout the years, and call her high school because she was cutting class and, and yell at her. Well, I actually don't yell at her, I just speak very firmly, and I have her answer me. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I need an answer. I need to hear it, yes or no. And, and then I remind her that I know that she's mad and she's going to get over it. But I have a right to say what I need to say. And so I, I, it's like I just want that in my life. And people here know, people know me here. My, the people that are close to my mom know that, you know, you have always been a happy person. Since I was a child, you know, that I love to dance and I love to make people laugh, but they also recognize that there's a part of me that is not whole. And I won't be whole until I have my children. So, for me, that would be basically all the challenges we feel with our life is not perfect. It will never be perfect. And just facing the challenges that, that I will have to face, because I know it won't be easy if I'm to New York. I still have to look for employment. I still have to do the things that everyone in New York is unaware of that I have to do, but just like get on board with the hustle of everyday life. I miss the subway so much. I want to be in there. I know people think that's not true, that it is true. I, I love the subway. And just doing those regular things, everyday things, stick my feet in the snow and just be so cold. I miss that. It's hot over here all year long. And people think I lie when I say I love the winter. How do you love the winter? You're born in Panama. I'm sorry. I love the winter. I love October, the fall, the least fall, and the cold air hitting my face. I love that. It's just, to me, it will be like a dream come true, just being able to face life and all those obstacles, but with 